Welcome to the Pharma Forum podcast. In this episode, I have an in-depth discussion of the women's health landscape with David Solomon, CEO of Mitra Pharmaceuticals, an international women's health specialty pharma company. A vast topic, our conversation traverses the remnant historical issues and potential innovations as pertains to women's health as much as is possible within the confines of a singular podcast. From health inequities to HRT, and from comparative mammalian gestation and the nurturing of infants to the very much female, human maternal and later menopausal experience, a sticking plaster approach to women's health cannot be tolerated any longer. But innovation permit a balanced, human health, life cycle encompassing approach that benefits women across demographics. As you'll hear, now is truly the moment for acting on what is a human right. As ever, thank you for listening. This is web editor Nicole Raleigh, and today I have with me David Solomon, who was appointed CEO of Mithra Pharmaceuticals back in April this year. Welcome, David. Thank you very much. Pleased to be here. Now, Mithra is an international women's health specialty pharma company. But before we get into the fine details of what Mithra does, David, I was wondering, it goes without saying that the current women's health landscape sadly isn't up to scratch, and we're going to get into those finer details. But you yourself, how did you come to work at Mithra? And what's been your journey to this point? Well, um, you know, I've been a public company CEO for about 17 years, and I, I love to lead innovation. I love love to lead high-performing teams. Um, and really, to do that well, you need great assets. Um, the assets are the center of the journey. And at Mithra, the asset, the principal asset of a Stetrol, a novel estrogen that has a fetal origin as opposed to a maternal origin, and that arguably has a better profile in terms of safety, in terms of reducing the risk of breast cancer or, or blood clotting, which were the primary concerns of earlier estrogens like estradiol, is a novel and important approach. And when you merge that together with the idea that women's health is now at the fore of a, a lot of discussions, not only health discussions, medical discussions, but political and cultural discussions, I thought it was a, a unique opportunity to, um, to lead this company. And um, you know what I love to do, and as you've seen at companies in the UK like Silence Therapeutics, and in Denmark and the U.S., like Zealand Pharma, both where I was CEO and I believe had a, a significant impact, is to take great assets and use that as a platform for building further assets and a further base. And, you know, at Mithra here, we're nearly 300 uh, terrific collaborators in the company. They've gotten uh, a Stetrol-based product approved through the clinic, through phase three positive studies, through commercialization. And so the team has the DNA to actually do what every biotech dreams to do, which is start with an asset that is proprietary, develop it, get it approved, and get it commercialized. And I believe if we've done it once at Mithra, we can do it again. So the topic is right and the framework is right. Thank you for that. So focusing on this statement, the topic is right, framework is right. What's potentially not right is the remnant state of women's health as it stands. As you say, it's a medical issue, it's a political issue, it's a cultural issue. So can you summarize for listeners 
what the state of the picture is on a global scale from the US to the UK and into Europe and beyond, as far as you're able. Yeah. You know, if you if you look at women's health generally, it's a it's a field that's poorly defined and understood. You know, are we talking about diseases, diseases uniquely of women, diseases that might have a preponderance of an increased incidence or, or prevalence in women? Or is it sometimes issues that are about the life cycle, right? About supporting women in their ability to live healthy, better lives in the life cycle. And that would be the topic of, of menopause. And um, so, you know, menopause is not a disease. Contraception is not a disease. But today, all these require seemingly medical interventions. And the question is, is that is that correct or just or the right approach. Um, that's one side of the story. The other side of the story that, is that women's health has largely been many more assets than there are buyers. And the assets tended to be rather generic right? Rather things that look more like plasters and more like generic things and more like combinations of generics and devicey things. And net-net, it's a field ripe for innovation because you know, there are a lot of diseases like polycystic ovary disease, et cetera, like innovations in fertility that demand innovation. And as you know, whether it's the UK or US or Europe, people pay for innovation. They don't so much pay for the thin margins on a generic. And so our fundamental core and my fundamental belief from my time at Silence in Zealand is that innovation wins the day in healthcare and in managing people's lives, helping people. And that's what I want to do in a transformative way at Mithra. And in fact, that's what women's health as a field is demanding. If you just read The Guardian or The New York Times, every single day there are articles about menopause and how women have been misunderstood and how it's not a disease. It is part of our lives and therefore something we should pay attention to. And so that's also part of the mission from a political and cultural way. And then because Estetrol is also a product in contraception as Estelle currently sold globally. It's a question also, should a contraceptive medicine be a medical visit with a physician or should it be a woman's choice insofar as the medicine may be safe and well tolerated? Should it be over the counter? That's the dialogue in the UK now. Should it be by e-prescription? All these things are part of the conversation, but that's just the starting point. And I wanted to say one other important thing. I come to this with a personal bent, it happens just as we say in French, pas à, by hazard, that my dad was one of the co-discoverers of estetrol in the 1960s when he was a endocrinologist and researcher at McGill University School of Medicine, working with the other co-discoverer, a gentleman called Egon Disfaluzzi at the Karolinska Institute, a, a Hungarian Jewish guy living in Sweden. And so, you know, the story has a personal bent for me. Um, and so I, I, I really feel um, a closeness to making sure that not only estetrol products in women's health are advanced, but also that the whole field of women's health is better understood and is innovative and is advanced as well. Absolutely. Thank you for that. And indeed for sharing that personal bent. So all this considered, in your opinion, why has women's health been so slow to come up to speed and hmm. this remnant misunderstanding has lingered for so long? Well, it's, almost it, it's almost historical. I mean, think about it. In the 1960s, when the first 
uh, oral contraceptives were being approved at FDA. There were meetings at FDA, and 100% of the people from the sponsor to the FDA people sitting around the table were men. And women were not involved. They were sort of disenfranchised to the process. And of course, this has gotten much better and, and somewhat rectified today. Bigger awareness, more professionals that are women and men. But it, it speaks volumes to how the field has been not paid attention to in the right way, culturally, politically, medically, that it may have. And so also the money has not flowed from funds to bring innovative medicines. Let me give you an example. I mean, of course, we're interested in advancing revenue for Estelle and then Donesta, our medicine for treatment of the symptoms of menopause that is essentially a standalone estetrol product. But we're also interested in innovation. And if you look at diseases like polycystic ovary disease, that's where women have many cysts on their ovaries. And those cysts are essentially follicles, egg follicles that are at the surface and they produce androgens or testosterone. So these women, unfortunately, lose their period, can't bear children. And even in the extreme cases are hirsute. They have you know, hair on their faces, mustaches, beards. And it's a terrible problem for essentially hundreds of thousands of women in the UK and the United States with no treatment whatsoever. And we are looking, for example, at, uh, at small molecule uh, medicines that are androgen enzyme uh, inhibitors that will stop that process allow women to have their period again, bear children, and not have uh, the obesity and facial hair that is the hallmark of that disease. And that's innovation. People will pay for that because that brings people to normal lives. This has never been paid attention to before. And so our job is to switch the dialogue to real concerns of women's health, at the same time bring innovation in the case of estrogens for contraception and for the treatment of menopause, and also just have more attention on life cycle of women and not so much disease, because we treat too much of this as disease because that's the historic norm. I mean, it's a terrible misnomer, to use the word correctly, that we talk about women who don't have a uterus as being hysterectomized. The word hysterectomized comes from the word hysteria. And we know that hysteria is not anything to do with women's state or their uterus. It's a, it's a pejorative description about a mental status or about anxiety. And so even the language today is wrong. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful that we can change that. I'm a big believer that this field is ripe for change culturally, politically, and medically. Absolutely. I mean, what you've just been saying, it goes back to that wrongly traditional stance of the hysterical woman in the time before lots of women's rights and multiple feminist waves, but it's not about feminism, it's about humanity. So focusing now on what you've been saying, this um, differentiating between disease treatment and life cycle treatment, this is something also that's being spoken about in a broader sense, in that instead of having sick care, we have health care. So if we translate this to women's healthcare instead of women's sick care and women's life cycle care, just how far behind that mentality when it comes to innovation is women's healthcare lagging behind men's healthcare? Yeah, enormously. And it's, it's, it's in the margins. I mean, of course, we, we treat, you know, ovarian cancer and uterine cancer seriously by all oncologists because 
it's life or death issues. And, uh, you know, in those obvious cases, it's clear, but let's consider menopause. I mean, 50% of the population, women, will enter menopause, and it's so poorly understood. I mean, when you think about all mammalian species, like look at 100,000 mammalian species, elephants live to 70 years, and the boys and girls keep reproducing until 65. Chimpanzees live to 45, and the boys and girls keep reproducing to 40. Only humans and toothed whales enter menopause for women midlife. And you have to first ask the question, well, why is that? And you think about it, it's really about a physiological economics, if you will. It's about preservation of our physiological uh, energetics, because we as humans don't bear that many offspring. And when we bear offspring, it takes, and I would argue, it takes a long time to bring our offspring to maturity. You know, traditionally, you would say 18 years, you know, little doggy puppies and rabbits, they become pretty mature pretty darn fast. Humans take 18 years. And as a parent of five kids, I would argue the number should be more like 24, because <laughs> in today's world, they're not off payroll until a significant period later. And that means in terms of energetics, we should be using all of our energetics at raising those very few offspring to maturity and independence. And that's why probably as an evolutionary point, we enter menopause, right? So that our focus cannot be on producing 22 offspring, but two or three, et cetera. So that's the biological or physiological explanation. But the consequences, as we know in menopause, is women have hot flashes in their skin changes and their hair changes and their sexual desire changes. And it happens right at the time when in today's world of a long life, they're the most powerful. Women are physicians and lawyers, partners in law firms, novelists, actors, doing all these basic things. And right at the height of their powers, you're entering this period of a bizarre decline that is not normal in mammalian species. And so it's our job as a society to support women through that. We should think about how we can have medicines that support sexual desire and hair and skin and mental health so there's not brain fog and anxiety. We just look at the case of Nicola Bully, who sadly, you know, died. It was a big topic in the UK. And, you know, I'm sure menopause had a role there and not understanding it well, et cetera. And we should, we should pay attention to that. In fact, wouldn't it be good if we could delay the ovary from failing from age 50 to age 70, not for reproductive reasons, but so that women have the integrity as men do of all these functions at the height of their powers. And so that's a topic in terms of women's health that's not paid attention to. And we as a company and we as a management team, as a group of leaders, really feel strongly about that. And that I think is important. Um, you know, as, as as changing the thinking from the medicalization and the word hysteria in women's health to a more rounded, holistic view about supporting women and their lives. Okay, so what is Mithra's stance there with the development of treatments for material delay of the onset of menopause or providing safer contraceptive and HRT solutions? Yeah, so in terms of HRT, we believe that Dinesta, which is a stetrol, a fetal estrogen, has a much better safety profile. And so insofar as it doesn't cause an increased risk of breast cancer or blood clots, we think it can be more widely used than estrogens have been. 
and therefore support women in terms of not only brain fog and hot flashes and skin and hair and sexual desire, but be a mainstay treatment. Because we all believe in medicine today when something's missing, when you're missing an enzyme that causes a disease and you, your children could die and you replace it. We think about diseases like diamond pick and Tay-Sachs where you replace enzymes. If what happens in menopause is estrogen levels go down because the ovary begins to decline, well, why not replace it? We have this bizarre idea that hormone replacement is bad, but that's because of misinformation. We don't believe replacing other missing factors is bad. They're often life-saving. So we need to get back to that posture, and that posture will be easy, more easily understood if people believe the medicine is safer and more well-tolerated. In terms of contraception, the same safe estetrol is part of oral contraceptives, and oral contraception should be a woman's choice about her own reproductive choice or destiny together with herself or her, her family. And that isn't a, a medical visit. It's not a disease. And so we believe that that should be a over-the-counter medicine in time, much like it's your over-the-counter choice to treat a range of, of things that are supporting our health and our choices. And um, so with regulators, we need to establish that those medicines are safe and well-tolerated beyond any doubt. And I believe that over time, that'll become over-the-counter. And those, both those efforts are in support of Mithra and we're a company. So shareholder value will ultimately bring shareholder value through those positions and ultimately at the same time, do better by women. And then of course, there's the innovation. How do we delay the onset of menopause? We're working on that. Our scientists uh, and our developers are actively discussing that. I can't disclose it now for reasons of confidentiality, but, but that's a key topic for us. So innovation in new areas in women's health and supporting women in areas where we know there are medicines, but they need to be rethought in terms of how they're dispensed, how they're used, and how safe they are. Thank you. So focusing now on um, how these medicines are dispensed and the sort of increase in over-the-counter possibilities, how far is this going to addressing the uh, inequity that still exists even when there are medical options, care options for women's health? So disparities in health equality, socioeconomically, geographically, the disparities in awareness, as you say, and access, and disparities even in the existence of treatments for other female conditions. I think this will help enormously. I mean, it's a catch-up game. The, the medicines are there. It's about our approach. I mean, we have no problem supporting men feel sexually, let's say, adequate or powerful by having erectile dysfunction medicines available now, in some cases OTC and certainly by e-prescription. And so we're not treating it as a disease that needs a doctor's visit. And we should do the same about menopause because sexual desire does decrease during menopause and women have every right to be as empowered and as self-actualized as they want to be. And the way to do that is not put a shame factor that you have to call up a physician and make an appointment three months hence to deal with that. You should be able to walk into a pharmacy and make a choice on the shelf, much like you make a choice of oat milk versus whole milk. An interesting comparative analogy, but I'm sure listeners absolutely understand that. So with these options occurring, and say if we, we step slightly into the future, not too far, if the sort of lingering needs of women's health are met and they're improved, then in your opinion, 
what would be the wider social impacts of that amelioration? Well, it's a clear message to the next generation that women to their 70s and 80s can keep chugging along just as men do, right? We see more and more men still partners in law firms and still doing everything at later and later ages, which is terrific because it's it's contributing all that wisdom finally to society. And, you know, and women more and more, when you look at professional life after menopause, there's many more dropping away for many reasons. But I would argue actually that menopause is one of the reasons that people are leaving posts that they've attained. And as, you know, young girls, young women start to see that ability of women to continue when we think about the care and menopause in the life cycle, I think it'll empower them to make different choices also in their lives, that we can have many more choices. You can have children and have a career. My mom would say, you can't do both. She was a, uh, you know, she was a, a fabulous journalist and editor, but at a certain point she said, I can't, I can't run the family life and be a fabulous journalist. I can't do both. And I, it's not that we can do everything. None of us can do everything, but we can have more potential if the span of time, because time is a key factor, if the span of time allows us to have the health possibilities to do more and be self-actualized, more is possible. Yes, picking up on that briefly. So this health span, in addition to lifespan concept, that's becoming spoken about more and more, you mentioned uh, or used the phrase chugging along as regards uh, men in their positions later on. So speaking about the life cycle of women, the lifespan, the health span of women, it's a multifaceted approach then in addition with innovation, is it not? Absolutely. And, you know, you need innovation to really drive this. And, innovate. you know, when you think about real innovation, sometimes you need someone to suggest the innovation. It just doesn't happen by itself. I mean, if, as Henry Ford said, if Henry Ford, had asked people in 1901 what they wanted, it would have said a faster horse and buggy. He knew what they needed was the automobile. It changed mobility in life. Steve Jobs did the same. Whatever we want to think about Steve Jobs, people, when you ask them what they wanted, because they had BlackBerry or, or Nokia handsets, they wanted, you know, better keyboard. And he said, I'm going to give you a phone with no keyboard because what they need in 20 years is the most powerful computer in their hand where they can transact their lives. Well, that's what we got. And we actually don't know what life looks like for that. But if it was not for that vision, right, of what we wanted, it, it, it wouldn't be here today or it would be here, but it would be much slower. And it's my belief that unless we are activists, as, as companies even, unless we're activists to bring these solutions to women and men, and families um, and better solutions, it won't, it'll, it'll happen, but much slower. And the time is ripe now. You see the, the, the social and cultural dialogue around menopause, around contraception, around medicines, access to care. You know, it's a human right. It, it, when these medicines get discovered, it's a human right to use them in the best way our humanity can provide to allow more fulfilling lives. That's the whole point of this. Yes. So taking that activism, that action, that vision, let's now go further into the future. And in your opinion, how long do you think it will be before there no longer needs to be a discussion of this topic where women's health needs will be properly met 
In short, I suppose when Mithra's job is done, David. Well, it's never quite done. I mean, you can see how the pendulum swings. I mean, we've gone from, you know, the 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 the, the liberal state in America under more visionary leaders like, uh, you know, John F. Kennedy, even social programs under under Johnson about civil rights. And now you've gone backwards in terms of abortion rights in the U.S., the Supreme Court, and politically with leaders like Trump that are rolling back some of these things. So, you know, there's always the need for that activism, not only in healthcare but socially in terms of equality, equality for the genders, equality for people of difference in general. Uh, we might be believers in all of that, and it might be in our DNA from our own lives and experience, but it's not the society's understanding, and it changes. And other societies are also very different. I mean, we only have to look to other societies like Saudi Arabia, where women are just getting the right to drive a car. And so these things are unending. I mean, we, will, we, we hope to be pioneers forever, but unless you keep reminding the world about this, um, it, it retrenches fast. I mean, it's the same thing about anti-Semitism today. Unless you remind what happened a scant comma ago in the history of, of modern life, um, the tragedy that happened, it will repeat itself. And it's the same thing in terms of bringing equality um, to women and to men together. Absolutely. As you say, it's having believers who are taking the steps and taking the activism for equality and rights, be that geographic specific for all humans, men and women together. Thank you, David. Right. It's been a pleasure. My pleasure as well. Thank you so much, Nicole. And so that concludes another episode of the Farmer podcast. You can find out more information about this episode, including a download link and information about previous installments of the series at farmerforum.com forward slash podcasts. The Farmer Forum podcast is also available on iTunes, Spotify, Acast, Stitcher and Podbean, where you can find and subscribe by searching for Farmer Forum. Of course, don't forget to visit our website itself, where you can sign up for daily news and analysis bulletins. And follow us on Twitter, or X nowadays, at at PharmaForum. That's all for now. Thank you for listening.